Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Joe Littler about left feminisms, conversations on the personal and political. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, This is a fascinating book, um, and it's a kind of slightly unusual um, book in in the sense that it's a book of interviews. Um, And the place to start with it is, where did the idea come from for a book of interviews? Um, And how did you choose the people you were interviewing? Well, I started doing interviews for Soundings, a journal of politics and culture, about 15 years ago or so. And they were on different topics, environmentalism, feminism, politics. And then I realized that increasingly I was interviewing left feminist academics. And that was a project that I had going. So at some point, about halfway through, I think when I'd done about eight interviews or so, I decided that it'd be nice to collect them together into a book, hence Left Feminisms. Um, and the other thing, obviously, from the title is what actually is Left Feminisms? Um, what what does, I guess, that kind of term mean? And how did you sort of develop it? Yeah, well, I think in the academic literature on feminist theory, there's often a focus on socialist feminism, um, which is you know, a, a topic, an area which I'm happy to be part of and identify with. But I think that the word socialism has a lot of different connotations for different generations. Um, So, for example, uh, when I was growing up in the 1980s and 90s, socialism stopped becoming a word that was part of the everyday language and became something that was pushed aside. It's slightly embarrassing in the third way, 1990s era. and so I wanted to kind of both engage with that tradition of socialist feminism, but also to reach a broader audience. So the book includes interviews with, you know, self-proclaimed communists and socialists, as well as social democrats and people who would just identify as broadly left. Um, but they do, all, you know, have have that left identification in common in that they are both interested in ending sexism and ending economic exploitation. I mean, there's a fascinating, and you've sort of alluded to it there, intersection of academic thoughts, I guess, kind of political practice, both in terms of formal institutions and then outside of institutions. And then obviously, you know, what runs through uh, all of the interviews is having some variety of feminist perspective. And we'll sort of pick out some of the um, people you've interviewed and and pick out some of those themes as we go. The final kind of introductory thing, I, I was quite struck early on by quite a sort of poignant moments in the introduction where you mentioned the people that you kind of couldn't interview, um, partially through, you know, kind of timing and I guess, you know, people have different sort of schedules, but also just in terms of having missed them because they died. So um, I don't want to say why your regrets about the book, but why your regrets about the book are that people that, you know, you really would have liked to have talked to, do you think there are people who are kind of like missing from, from the list? Yeah, well, I mean, there's only 14 people that I interviewed, so inevitably there are thousands of people missing from the list and it can't be 
fully representative and capacious. And to some extent, it's you know it's a, a project that that snowballed on its own terms. But there were definitely people that I wanted to interview who who died before I got it got around to it. So, for example, I would have really loved to have interviewed Bell Hooks and Doreen Massey, who was you know set up Soundings originally with Mike Rustin, Stuart Hall. Um, and Barbara Ehrenreich. Uh, and there's also people I couldn't get hold of. Like I really wanted to interview Vandana Shiva and Maria Mize and haven't yet been able to get hold of them. But if they're listening, what for a season. <laughs> still do it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, maybe let's kick off with Nancy Fraser. And I think she's sort of a good starting point in a variety of different ways, partially because when you spoke to her, um, she was a sort of career retrospective moment in terms of the book. Um, that you were, you were talking to her about, but also she's a good example of having lived through precisely the sort of changes around broad definitions of left, mm-hmm. around politics and political institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, why did you sort of start with her? Why did you put her first? And what kind of ideas were you talking to her about? Well, the book is broadly chronological, although there are a few interviews that are mixed up here and there. Um, so that there weren't too many of the similar ilk back to back. Um, so when I talked to Nancy Fraser, she just brought out Fortunes of Feminism, and it, which is like you say, it's a retrospective and it provides kind of interesting historical um, account of the shifts between the Fordist family wage and two earner neoliberal household and the the rise of neoliberal feminism. So that was, you know, that that was one of the the first interviews that I did, perhaps. Um, so that's partly why it went first, and it also provides, you know, some good context for what tends to get discussed later on. In terms of what gets discussed later on, what are those kind of themes that she was talking about? That, like, what are the sort of important ideas that frame the book from Nancy Fraser? Well, she's talking about the kind of social and material transitions in the in the global north um you know how societies become organized along different lines and she's talking about the rise of what she calls progressive neoliberalism <laughs> which is a kind of socially liberal form of neoliberalism um in which women for example have been encouraged to lean into corporate norms of the workplace um and you have typically um the ideal family being a two earner so excuse me, to earn a family, which is you know subject to uh, which which basically works too hard. So it, it kind of it doesn't fulfil what she calls um, you know the universal caregiver model. So her ideal is really that you should we should have a, a kind of system whereby you you can have supports for care. For example, um, when you you might have a three or four day week in which people in a in a nuclear household not that you have to have that can provide care um and then she also talks towards the end of the interview if i remember correctly about environmentalism so i asked her you know how that had become a important recent part of her work and how she kind of factors it into her marxist feminist social theory i mean neoliberalism obviously runs right throughout the book um both in in terms of I guess kind of critiques of it, but you know various uh, thinkers who are you know shaped by by its context. And if we might jump sort of forward a bit, because you interview, I suppose one of the leading theorists of neoliberalism, Wendy Brown. And I'm interested to know a bit about 
Um, I guess kind of why Wendy Brown's approach to neoliberalism is so important, um, kind of how she understands the term um, as a way of kind of thinking about how others have reacted to it. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that you should probably read the interview because I'm representing <laughs> people here in ways that they might not necessarily want to be represented. But what I take from her account is that she's particularly interested in um, formations of neoliberal rationality and how they operate at the, the levels of you know, psychological and social governance as well as governmental governance. So how those those rationalities of, of people being being pushed and forced to operate as specks of capital um, comes into being and how it works to, as she puts it, uh, undo the demos, undo the social civil contract and um, institutions of the Fordist deal and the New Deal and the welfare state <laughs> in its different forms. Um, yeah, so we, we talked about that. And we also talked about the rise of different forms of neoliberalism, such as neoliberal nationalism. So the way in which uh, the, what Nancy Fraser called progressive neoliberalism or social neoliberalism is becoming much more bordered. Um, yeah. In terms of Brown and, and Fraser, I guess, I'd think of them as a sort of, you know, formal sort of big P, big T political theorists. But within the book, you've got um, people who have a, a sort of much broader view of politics, both in terms of kind of the practice of, of politics and then also, I guess, kind of more everyday forms of things like um, organising mm -hmm. and sort of community activism. And Akugo Abajulu, she's actually been, been on the podcast a few years ago, is one of the leading, um, I guess, uh, sort of theorists and practitioners around the idea of activism. Um, as you know, sort of political practice. And I'm fascinated by, I, I guess, kind of how you chose her. Um, and again, not to misrepresent her, but what were some of the ideas that came up in your conversation with her? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've been reading her work and I thought it was fantastic and I wanted to talk to her about it. So some parts of that that I was particularly interested in is how she has a, a great account of the, the kinds of changes that are forced through the third sector in the 1980s and 90s, how they're forced to become more entrepreneurial in their outlook, in more short term in their ways of thinking and their project management. So we talked about that. We also talked about activism, as you say, and she's really interesting in how she uh, discusses uh, the you know how we need to broaden out the definition of activism. So we need to not just think about the kind of media images of young white activists doing demonstration against oil, but we need to think about the kind of community organization and activism that might be happening, for example, in school playgrounds, which might be happening in terms of people looking out for each other in a block of flats in relation to raids and deportation. So really, um, you know, expanding the definition of, of activism away from the usual white imperialist suspects. I mean, I'm slightly wary of drawing um, false contrasts um, and, you know, drawing sort of too sharp um, a, a contrast between some of the thinkers. But people like Hilary Wainwright, uh, Sheila Robottom have got, I suppose, um, a combination of these activist backgrounds, but um, a history of more sort of formal political involvement, yeah. uh, both, you know, kind of locally here as we interview. Uh, in London, but also kind of in, in terms of national politics. Mm -hmm. um, 
what were some of the ideas around, I guess, kind of formal politics and to an extent its limits that came up when you were talking to those two? Mm-hmm. Well, they've both been involved in the Greater London Council of the 1980s. So, and as Hillary said, in particular, that is a history that has until recently been largely marginalised and occluded, particularly in terms of gender. Um, so they talked about the work that they did on a local grassroots level in terms of trying to encourage more caring communities and trying to encourage um, the capacities, for example, for collective laundries and, you know, feeding feeding people um, who can afford it in the community to have breakfast, for example, so communal eating and those kind of, some of the histories of those ideas. Um, so, yeah, so they, they talked a lot about their, their work with the GLC in terms of economics um, and also their academic or intellectual or other modes of engagement. So Hillary, for example, talked about setting up Red Pepper magazine and Sheila talked about all her different um, involvement with education, being a teacher, as well as doing an enormous number of books on, on histories of feminism and women and different figures. I mean, history runs right away through the book and, and even with some of your younger interviewees, you know, there's the importance of kind of situating themselves at a particular moment. Uh, but I kind of got the impression that for both Robot and Wainwright, history was, um, as you'd mentioned, you know, something that they were, I suppose, kind of concerned that certain things might be forgotten, occluded, um, you know, not given the status and, and prominence. And, and I'm sort of slightly interested in, in the extent to which the book itself is a project of, you know, uncovering or kind of restating um, possibly forgotten histories. And was was that some of the motivation for interviewing those two as well? Yeah, I mean, I think they both have relatively high profiles in their own ways. But but yes, there are, there are aspects of what they did that I didn't necessarily know or didn't think was particularly well publicised. So some of the joy of doing a book like this or a project like this is you can you can find out you can find a way to join the dots with with um, bits of information that might not be in the public domain, um, and you know, as as well as trying to get a sense of who the people are that are writing these books that is are so interesting and influential. I mean, the the thing you mentioned um, just before with with both of them is this sense of them having um, various different um, kind of spaces that they work in, and one of them is is obviously. The academic space later on in the book with Angela McRobbie and, and Sylvia Walby's um, interviews, they were very keen, uh, and the conversation sort of flagged up the importance of particular academic disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, I guess, if you could sort of say something about like why academia matters um, to not just you know uh, those two thinkers, but you know, kind of throughout the book, and then maybe we'll talk about things like sociology and cultural studies a bit later. Yeah. Well, academia matters in a multitude of ways, doesn't it? So it matters in terms of teaching people. And I think that's something that came through quite a lot of the interviews in terms of people's engagement with different um, institutions and and t- connection with students and teaching different cohorts. So, for example, Sheila Robotham talks really brilliantly about um, teaching teaching kind of racist boys and managing to connect with them and, and turn around their ideas. 
Um, so, so there's that kind of reality of teaching aspect to it, and then there's the, you know, the importance of the texts and the ideas that are being generated, and uh, partly the, doing the interviews is a way to translate those ideas and those theories that might, to some extent, remain in the academy or in possession of academics and try and translate it to a wider audience along with the remit of the journal where they started. So I wanted to make these concepts accessible to a wider public and to get them to talk about them. Um, and yeah, and also to kind of interview them as kind of, of as people who are in particular institutions at particular times and places and to, to get a sense of how that shaped what they were doing. Um, so, for example, as Sheila Robotham says, the conditions were much nicer when I first went. <laughs> and Lynn Siegel talks about, you know, how she was a kind of part-time academic, even, you know, with a full-time job. She was basically she thought of herself as a full-time activist and a part-time academic in a way that no one could do now because of the ways in which um, workloads have exponentially increased. So I wanted to, yeah, give a sense of those different institutions and how people function in relation to them as, you know, organic intellectuals in the academy as well as outside in the broader world. And those institutions, you know, they're sort of academic disciplines as well. So I think you, I can't remember exactly, but I think you, you asked Sylvia Warby something like, you know, was sociology a kind of a good home, you know, for you to work in and, and what was your relationship? And then obviously um, listeners may or may not know, you know, Angela Robbie is one of the people who effectively kind of built, you know, with others British cultural studies. So, so why did kind of, um, the academic disciplines get prominence in those balance two conversations? Well, it partly speaks to my bias as someone <laughs> who's located between cultural studies and sociology, who's <laughs> particularly interested in, in those disciplines. But I am also interested in how, you know, the, the both the kind of institutionalization of those disciplines and the, the way in which they're, they're framed contributes to generating ideas and thought and potential or might constrain it equally. Um, so cultural studies is quite interesting in those terms, in terms of how it, you know, saw itself very much as a kind of um, rebellious, uh, anti-discipline, trans-discipline that would rip up the rule book and try and interconnect lots of different topics together to solve the problem of how you understand the conjuncture or the present moment. We've talked quite a lot about um, British or at least transatlantic thinkers. Um, the interview with um, Veronica Gago, Gago mm -hmm. uh, st stood out a bit because her context is very, very different in terms of Argentina and, and the kind of broader Latin American uh, context for left feminism. Mm. Partially, I'm interested in kind of like why you picked her. Um, and again, not to set up sort of false contrasts, but was it, you know, to get that sort of different perspective? Or I guess, like some of the others, was she just someone who you'd been reading her work for a while and, and were in, was interested to talk to her? I have been reading her book. So I had read her book, Neoliberalism from Below and Feminist International, and found them hugely interesting. And they're also part of the moment of um, resurgent Latin American feminism as manifest in the activist movement, Ni Uni Menos, um, which links together campaigns against violence against women with campaigns against neoliberal exploitation. Um, so they have some amazingly great slogans. Um, oh God, I've just forgotten it. My brain's gone dead. 
<laughs> we want ourselves alive and debt free is one of them. Um, which so I was interested in it, talking to her about that um, and looking at some of the continuities and differences from uh, fem- more local feminisms to me. Um, it was also made possible bluntly by increased use of tech. So you know I could zoom her be- because suddenly everyone was able to zoom. Um, and before the interviews that I'd done had been primarily restricted to who I could see in person. I mean, it was interesting how so many of the things she was talking about came up with the other interviewees as well, um, despite or perhaps you know, because of a very different social context, but a broader, as you've mentioned, set of you know kind of social conditions and, and a particularly um, kind of important moments of things like the impact of neoliberalism on Latin American societies. I guess some of the things she talks about, I'd sort of think about as kind of practices mm-hmm. um, and later on in the book um, practices become really really important both in terms of the idea of kind of writing and co-writing mm-hmm. um, but also um, the relationship between things like art and curation mm-hmm. um, beyond academia and uh, you know you don't have to pick out individuals in, in, in particular but I'm interested in those two elements actually going beyond politics activism academia to think about things like artistic practice or, or the practice of writing. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, I keep saying why were they important, but where did they kind of figure? Was that just something that came up when interviewing people, or were you sort of interested in foregrounding or highlighting them for the collection? I'm interested in how different people create their ideas and their practices and their politics, their praxis. So, and it's, it's you know, it's, it's a book of interviews with individuals. I, I, I think I started out doing a few more roundtables um, before the book, but this is the form the book ended up taking. But it was, you know, it was, it was, it was good to, to highlight, I think, that the collaborative work that people did, whether Veronica Gago's um, collaborative activism with Nina Menos or Gargi Bhattacharya's work with the... the um, group of people that produced Empire's Endgame. So Gargi talks about how they co-wrote to such an extent that they no longer knew who wrote what and when. It's really collaborative activity, um, which is a great example, isn't it, of practice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's more actually we, we could talk about there, but um, I was struck by something you said about Nancy Fraser about towards the end of the interview, bringing up questions of kind of ecology um, issues around the climate crisis. And this comes through in from Ware's uh, chapter. Um, and this is uh, you know, strikingly kind of ignorant thing to say, but um, often we don't think of the rural as being a site for left feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there are lots of sort of problems behind that statement. And, and again, I'm fascinated by where things like the rural figure in an understanding of left feminism and what we can kind of take away from your interview with Ron Ware. Mm-hmm. Well, Ron's book, uh, Return of a Native, is really an amazing interdisciplinary and thick description of the area in which she grew up. And it links together her um, interests in gender, race, class, ecology, and peace, including others. So you know, she, it's 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 you know she's she's got a background in thinking about questions of whiteness and gender, 
and issues around imperialism and ecology and uh, peace studies. So a lot of those are kind of brought together in her analysis of the, just the, the area, this, this, the kind of rural space and its, its multi-layered histories. So she does a kind of, you know, an archaeology, cultural archaeology of this, this site, um, linking together issues around uh, war and um, domestic labor. Um, so providing a really kind of nuanced interwoven sense of how those themes interconnect. I mean, that was um, especially fascinating, I think, because um, it sort of stood out as sort of quite distinctive and quite different. Um, but in their own way, each chapter is very distinctive and different um, because even under the kind of left feminisms um, banner, you've got people at different career stages, people with, um, as you say, different forms of praxis um, and distinctive and, and different ideas. And maybe a couple of those that come up at the end of the book, uh, one reflects, um, I suppose, age and career stage, and the other reflects uh, a kind of contemporary struggle um, over the boundaries and, and definitions. So um, Finn McKay, Kai's uh, chapter, um, grappled with how we should understand kind of radicalism mm-hmm. and radical feminism. And again, you know, not, not not to speak for them, but I'm sort of fascinated by what that term means in a context where it has um, particularly kind of loaded connotations for yeah. uh, various different political groups. Um, so, yeah, why was that kind of important to your, your interview with Finn? Um, well, Finn has a really nuanced um, sense of what radical feminism involves and they are very attuned to the complexities of its histories uh, how it's been both exclusionary and inclusionary. Um, so I thought that was a, a useful way into talking about the gender wars. Um, you know, Finn's got a new book out, Female Masculinities and the Gender Wars, and it's, it's, it's just fantastic at picking apart some of the different genealogies of the present, <laughs> the dramas of the present. Um, and also Finn's interview is interesting because, because they don't, primarily identifies a left feminist. Uh, Finn identifies as a radical feminist, like you indicated, um, but they are very much, you know, on the left. So that again is, is a kind of reflection of how people are positioned in different ways throughout the book and it's plurality of left feminist voices. I mean, the, the other person who comes right at the end of the book, um, who, who has, I suppose, um, a distinctive and new perspective is Sophia uh, Siddiqui, mm-hmm. who uh, I think I'm right in saying is the youngest yeah. um, of, of the interviewees. Yeah. Um, and n- not to be like all kind of your dad about it, but <laughs> w- was there a kind of generational difference um, or, you know, are we still in the realm of each of these thinkers has a distinctive perspective yeah. that can kind of sit alongside each other? Yeah, well, it's true. I think at the beginning of the project, I was doing, as I say in the introduction, quite crudely, I, it, it almost felt like this is a project of interviewing people before they die. Um, and then as it wore on, I wanted to talk to more people of my generation and younger. So then I became quite conscious that there weren't many younger people <laughs> in the book. And Sophia, um, who works at the Institute of Race Relations in, in London, um, regularly comes in to do a brilliant lecture for my gender and society course on anti-racist feminism and she's the deputy editor 
of race and class and she also writes really great articles about reproductive racism for example so it was you know it's a joy to talk to her as the, as the final entry in the book and i thought that was a good place to stop and actually she not just brings us up, up to date but i think it's in you know really uh kind of useful and direct dialogue with Finn mm-hmm. around this idea of intersectionality and the need for an intersectional feminism. Yeah. Um, particularly in the context of, as you've outlined, you know, Finn's attempt to really, you know, sort of situate where radical feminism is and where it's come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a nice way to sort of wrap up in, in terms of um, the, the interviewees is with this term. So what, what is intersectionality and kind of why, I guess, do, does it matter? In my reading of it, I don't think anyone you've interviewed would say, you know, be sort of hostile to that idea mm-hmm. um, and, you know, m- might indeed position themselves as intersectional left feminists. Um, so it, it sort of struck me as a kind of key term and a key idea. Yeah, absolutely. So it broadly means interlocking systems of oppression, coined, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the context of feminist legal studies to try and take account of how um, a black woman was was discriminated against in an employment context where the, the organization employed, you know, she, she knew that she hadn't got the job because she was a black woman, but the company said, you know, we employ, we employ black people and we employ women, but it turned out they employed white women as white collar workers and they employed black men as manual workers. So the term has kind of soared into popularity since then, um, and it has a very kind of activist uh, and policy context, which again is interesting and important, I think. Um, and as Sophia talks about in her interview, um, it's it's a term <clears throat> which is really useful and has popular currency. It's also a term which, as she says, on its own can't do everything because, for example, it doesn't have much of an account of say capitalist social dynamics. So you need to overlay that onto it as well. Um, and also there are, you know, as many people in the book highlight, uh, there are earlier kind of usage of that that term and it's in sorry, of that of the kind of that meaning, um, even if the term itself isn't being used. So Sophia talks about, you know, uh, ideas of double and triple oppression, for example. And um, in Sheila Robotham's interview, I highlight how she was doing intersectional work before that term was being coined as well. So they're all, you know, in in different ways and forms, kind of interested in in complicated understandings of, of feminism. Um, and it, in terms of academic thought, um, we didn't talk about Carol Tullock's work as well. Things are putting that into practice through her exhibitions. Um, yeah, so I wanted to create a kind of multifaceted account of the divergence of left feminism. I mean, it's, you know, a remarkable book. You, know, you interviewed Nancy Fraser in 2014, so we're getting close to, you know, a decade uh, for, for this uh, project to put it together. Uh, and there's, you know, loads of different sort of uh, nuances and, and ideas we haven't covered, partially because I'm interviewing you about interviews. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as, as you've sort of urged people already, kind of go and read it and um, sort of in, engage with it um, and, and take your own view. The nature of this kind of long-term project, um, you know, I suppose it, it sort of, on the one hand, 
has a natural conclusion, but also, as you've already mentioned, there are, you know, newer voices and other people you might try and interview. So is the next stage kind of doing this again, or, you know, is that another decade long project <laughs> or are you going to be working on something uh, kind of completely different? Um, well, yeah, it could go in any number of different directions. It's enormously time consuming to do interviews. So I'm going to park it for the moment. Um, I'm doing a project with my my colleague Ros Gill and Hannah Curran Troop on the intersections between entrepreneurialism and precarity and feminism. So looking at some of those short term short termism of the feminist projects that I alluded to earlier. And I'm also working on a project called Ideologies of Inequality, 